you are listening to The Mend Podcast. I'm Joe Roeder, and I spend my life on the water and in the field. As a fly fishing guide and outfitter, I have spent decades personally honing my skills and helping other people improve theirs. My goal is to help listeners learn from my mistakes and successes. This podcast is brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, the best place to get outfitted for your next big adventure. Welcome back to the Men Podcast. I have a very special guest today who just recently informed me uh, that he is the fourth, not the final, guest on the Men Podcast. Welcome Dallas Murray at Reds. Most of you who've done business with Reds, traveling, guiding, hunting, have worked with Dallas. Well, hello, Dallas. Hey, thanks, Joe. I'm, I'm pleased to be on the podcast. Hopefully, it's not the last time. Oh, I don't, I don't know if it's a special honor or uh, I don't know if it's a special honor or you've just been relegated to being like the pod the the lone wolf podcast guest here. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna sit in my den uh, and come down and talk hunting and fishing before you go to a full day's worth of work. But uh, yeah, got you got you on the podcast here. Um, Dallas and I recently had a big adventure together, uh, and you'll hear about that kind of on the back end of the podcast. But that was my Washington State once-in-a-lifetime moose hunt. So uh, if you go over to the At Red's Hunting Instagram, it's At Red's Hunting, right, Dallas? At Red's Hunting, you got it. At Red's Hunting Instagram, you can see some pictures of that. And uh, if you scroll back and kind of follow through, there was a few early posts that you'll hear about on today's podcast. But we're not just going to talk about moose hunting. What are we going to talk about first, Dallas? Oh, everybody wants to know, right? It's... Okay, if you're familiar with Ellensburg, we just hit winter season. We got six inches of snow last night. Okay, how was the winter fishing? I know you went out a couple days ago. How was it? The winter fishing for me was very, very good a couple days ago, but I chose my day very wisely. Um, very different than we had boat renters out yesterday. And man, I love that gung-ho spirit, man. I was like, I was all rooting for those guys to go have a good day. Uh, they did not have a very good day as far as productivity, but man, those guys are studs. I was pretty stoked when they got off the river. They're like, yeah, we didn't catch shit, man. I was like, you know what? I was like, I've been there in this time of year. Like when you have that, like just unapologetic passion for fly fishing that you're going to go out when it's blowing snow sideways, you're going to rent a boat, you're going to hit the river, roll the dice and see what happens. To me, that is like the heart and soul of this sport. I was so rooting for those guys, but I can understand it was a little bit tough yesterday because the nighttime lows were pretty cold and then it really never never really did warm up during the day. Yeah, and it was kind of blowing and snowing all day yesterday. But man, they still had the gung-ho spirit when they got back in the truck at the end of the day. They, they were stoked. They were just as happy as when they started. Yeah, I like those guys. If they're listening to the podcast, man, I uh, I was impressed. I was uh, I was like, man, I felt like we were sacred, or uh, not sacred, but... What's the term like kindred spirits? Yes, like, <laughs> uh, kindred spirits. Yeah. Like, I felt like I felt like I should have been out there getting my butt kicked with them, but the uh, office was pretty nice. Yeah, winter winter fishing can be really good. You you want to have like uh, for year man. I fished in the winter for years here, uh, especially in college. It seemed like and everybody talks about how hard college was, and yeah, parts of it were hard, but man, it was like work hard, play hard. I get my work done or pick out which class I could miss. And I would drive down to the canyon when I was in college. And um, gas was cheap back then, even though I was broke. But I could leave my car running and go wade fish. Never really thought about it getting stolen. But I would leave my car running and then I'd go fish for like 15, 20 minutes. Just 
freeze my ass off, and then I'd run back up and warm up in the car. We've done that a couple of times, even even in the recent years. Yeah. It's uh, film some videos. <laughs> yeah, filming videos. Dallas is often the camera guy um, doing our Instagram and YouTube stuff. But yeah, I think that there's like an approach that people have to have, and going out and putting the drift boat in and fishing for eight hours is that's kind of the modern paradigm of like big Western river fishing. That's just kind of what you do is you go out and you do that all day thing. And I think people need to take like small bites and plan on like, number one, you, if you're not comfortable winter fishing, you probably aren't going to do it often enough and stick with it long enough and frequently enough to get like kind of a, a battle plan kind of lined out. Cause you can't just stumble out to a big river in December, January not have a really good plan and then hope to luck into some fish. I mean, that's a kind of an, un- maybe in the summer when the bite's really good, the fish are moving a long ways for the fly and they're super aggressive, but people got to develop a better plan. Uh, what do you see? Like, so Dallas is like such a good observer, right? Like you see thousands of bodies come through the shop and the guide service and the, the university and all that. Like, what do you see when people like have a good time winter fishing and come with a success? What do you think like some just basic tips are? Uh, yeah, I think you, you, when you're talking about winter fishing, you just got to combat the elements, right? And I think far too often, like you were saying, Joe, if you go out in the summertime, you go out wade fishing in the summertime, whether you catch a fish or not, you're going to have a great time. You're probably going to catch a tan, maybe even a sunburn. Uh, but when you go out winter fishing, far too often, they just don't seem prepared enough, right? And so they're, they're dealing with the element of being too cold and then they're not necessarily focusing on their fishing. Um, but I do find the hardcore fishermen that go out do it often, uh, do it frequently. They tend to catch a handful of nice fish and they have a great time, right? Uh, so I think just making sure that you prepare yourself for the elements, whether you're having some toe warmers in your waders, extra layers, uh, and then really just doing it enough to where you feel confident in your abilities to go out and winter fish. Uh, and I think typically in the winter, you're going to yield a couple of nice fish at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, you stick with it. Bigger average size for sure, man. I think the a lot of people, all they're catching out there is a cold. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's the truth, but it can be done. It can be done well, but I think comfort is a big part of it. Uh, when I put my boat in during the winter, I'm planning on a short float. I'm like three miles or less. Like three miles would be like a long float for me in the winter. Uh, I'm focusing on really working over spots. That run and gun mentality that that Western guides have works great when the fish are aggressive or if you're a western guide and you know every seam line and you can just hit seam line after seam line after seam line not worry about changing flies moving your indicator or figuring out where the fish are but for most listeners the podcast like when you're on your local river or your local stream like if you're weekend warrior like most star there's a little bit of due diligence that has to take place on figuring out what depth to be at, where to be in the river, what flies to use. And you can't really make those deductions when you're just, when you bite off a big piece of water and, and you're, a, you're a boat floater and you cruise a long ways. And the same could be said for wade fishing instead of just trying to cover a lot of water wade fishing. Like take that really slow, very deliberate approach to each individual piece of water. And I think that helps people kind of be more comfortable because you can get a lot done in a shorter period of time when you're not moving from hole to hole. And I think on like winter fishing, the whole experience, the whole experience is um, part of the package, right? So you've got wildlife, you've got eagles, you've got scenery, you've got solitude, 
you know, the Acoma Canyon, you can you can see some bighorn sheep and some mule deer are all extremely visible on the hillsides right now. Everything's up on their feet and feeding. It's a great time to wildlife watch. So you do a little bit of that in the morning, pre-fish. You, you, you come out prepared, rigged up well with a good layering system that I know this might sound silly, but you've tried that layering system on with your waders at home. So you don't wind up like the Malto mule boy trying to hike around the river, just getting sweaty. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. <laughs> hiking Make into sure. a... Make, make sure your 16 puffies will fit inside your extra small waders. Uh, yes, that's that's key. Yeah, and then make sure and wear it all when you hike down to the river so you get a good layer of sweat going yeah. right before you park your butt in the hole for, for three hours and stand in the river. Good layer of sweat's really important. Yeah, and find that the sunny stretches of, of river, right? I mean, I think far too often there's a bunch of sections of river that maybe never see the sun this time of year. So find those sections of river that are going to be uh, in the sunny part and warm up a little bit, not just for you, but the fish as well. Yeah, I've got a float and I'm not giving it away. I, I'm not <laughs> I giving it away on the podcast, but I have one float in the wintertime that I know I can get three to four hours of direct sunlight on me where I'm not hidden behind all the canyon walls. And I've got it timed. I can hit spot after spot after spot and I can stay in the sun because that does make a big difference uh, on your comfort, but also uh, on guides not freezing up. Yeah. You, know, and for, you know, ice in your guides when you're fly fishing is... Uh, can be pretty distracting uh, to the big picture, but put that layering system on um, in advance um, is really important to just kind of see how everything fits and make sure you're not too restricted because like with insulating layers, like Dallas, explain how like a puffy in an insulating layer actually works and what's required of it for it to function the way it was designed. Yeah, we talked, I mean, puffies are these things that you can see used incorrectly way too often. For a puffy to insulate, it needs to have the space of the puffy to create the insulation, right? If you if you take in a puffy and you put it underneath, let's say your waders, for instance, maybe you put a puffy pant on and you put your waders on and there's no, that all of that puff is compressed, you're not going to get any of the insulation factor of that puffy that it was created for. So you want to make sure that your puffy is able to stay fluffed or puffy and then you also... Um, want to make sure that when you're wearing a puffy layer, you can go deep into talking about uh, synthetic versus down, but typically a puffy layer, you want to make sure it's staying dry, right? So you want to make sure if your puffy layer is on your outside layer, it's not pouring down rain, uh, especially when you're talking about down, but really just making sure that that puffy is staying loft is going to be key to keeping the insulation. Uh, it's going to trap that, it's going to trap that heat to keep you warm. If it's not lofted, you're losing out all of the, the benefits of that puffy layer. Yeah, that airspace kills thermal con conductivity. So you need that puffy puffed up. So don't put don't put anything over a, an insulated layer. I wear the Sims Extreme uh, jacket. Um, it's like Primaloft silver insulation. So it's a synthetic. This is not a sales pitch. This is just important information. It's a Primaloft silver synthetic insulation. So when it does get damp, it tends to maintain its loft where that doesn't stick together, whereas down the, that fiber or those those feathers will actually stick together and it will lose its insulation property. So for being in fishing, I really like Primaloft. Primaloft's like just, it's a, we've been through like a whole sales training about it, but it's like, it's a pretty magic material when it's around moisture and, and it's a factory material, yeah. Yeah, most of my most of my backcountry hunting gear is, is gonna be Primaloft versus down, even though down's a little bit lighter. And I think it does have a little bit insul insulation per ounce it's probably a more valuable product uh, or more effective product but 
Uh, if it's not raining, which it's typically not going to be raining from the winter fishing we're talking about, we're talking east of the Cascade Mountains, in the Rockies, pretty dry. We're not necessarily talking Olympic Peninsula, you know, coastal steelhead fishing. Uh, for that, uh, we'll talk about that in a second, just kind of moisture management in a cold environment. But I like to wear my puffy outside my waders. I generally don't wade over thigh deep in the wintertime. Uh, so I'm not generally wading deep. I'm going to wear my puffy on the outside of my waders. I think it's more comfortable. It provides great loft. And I'm generally not going to wear a wading jacket. Uh, I will just generally wear my puffy as my outer layer. Um, and that puffy has a hood in Man, an insulated hood, like a Prima Loft hood, to keep that any air movement off the back or the nape of your neck is, it's like magic. I'll be freezing and I will throw that that insulated hood over my beanie cap and my hat and uh, that that's a game changer. So the puffy, using the puffy, right? And and not like a thin one, dude. No, you need it. Yeah, need to get that. That Sims Extreme one is is awesome, and the outside material of it is, they did a good job on that. But yeah, dude. Nothing will chill you faster than cold air on the back of your neck. Like it, it doesn't. There's nothing that'll make you colder quicker. Yeah. So my layering system, if I'm just kind of summarize, it's going to vary a little bit day by day. But I'm going to wear one thick pair of wool socks. You know, just a thick, darn tough. I'm not too picky about that. If you have poor circulation, be thinking battery heated. Be thinking toe warmers. I personally hate toe warmers and hand warmers. I just, I've been disappointed nine out of 10 times, it seems like. It's probably not that high of a ratio, but I shake the hell out of those things and they never warm up. <laughs> so use toe warmers if you have poor circulation, you're really nervous about being cold. I think that's a fine thing to do. I personally don't. Uh, I wear just one thick pair of wool socks. I wear my standard G3 or G4 waders. Um, and I have a pair of boot foot waders, but they're probably pretty leaky by now. They're pretty trashed from using around the shop, taking boats in and out of the water. But boot foot is better. You can order a custom pair of Sims boot foot waders. I don't know of another boot foot wader company uh, that has like a good felt bottom sole that would be appropriate uh, for fly fishing. Neoprene just does not breathe. I wind up clammy. I mean, I've had neoprene waders in the past. I wind up clammy because they don't breathe. And all the new Sims waders, and there's a couple of other brands out there that are just hitting the market too, that breathability to get that water vapor out of your waders is really important. Uh, but boot foot is better. I generally don't wear boot foot. I like the traction of studded felt on my corkers boots. For winter fishing, I do not want to slip and fall. So I wear studded felt, and I replace those probably once or twice a year. I just buy another set of 30 or $40 soles, plug them in. I've got fresh felt and fresh studs all the time in my boots. Uh, I wear a tight-fitting base layer, uh, and then I'll wear... You know, I've got these Reddington IO pants. Um, I don't know what the hell IO stands for. You know what that stands for? I have no clue. Inside out? Inside I don't know. Out. They have these little stirrups on them. So they're like a like a kind of a leotard type. You know, like foot on them, and you put these stirrups on, yeah. and like they don't slide, they don't ride up or slide up while you're hiking. Yeah. So I really like that stirrup system. But I'm basically wearing just like a tight fitting base layer and just a heavy fleece pant. Uh, I tend to f- stay pretty warm while I'm fishing, um, and part of it too is I'm not I'm not going to go grind it out for eight hours when it's 25 degrees. Um, I'm fishing half days, yeah. short time frame. He, he uh, yeah, targeting the warmest part of the day, yeah. and then uh, you know going above that, I'm generally going to wear 
uh, some type of synthetic against my skin that's slick. Now, I, you can wear like an Under Armour type, but I generally wear like those Sim Solar Flex hoodie types um, because they slide really well. Like my skin can kind of move around them and slide in them a little bit, and so you don't get a lot of that binding when you're casting or moving around. But I'll go pretty basic. I'll go uh, like a Solar Flex type hoodie or synthetic material. You can go merino wool, whatever. It doesn't matter too much. Uh, and then I'll generally go with a kind of a burly mid-layer. I've got this uh, Sitka hoodie uh, that I like an awful lot. And uh, I can't remember the name. It's like their Sitka Strata hoodie from Sitka Gear. Sims makes, yeah, they don't really make anything quite equivalent to that piece of gear, but it's a grid fleece. And grid fleece, when it comes to mid-layers, is a really good insulating material that can also be layered. So Correct. Yeah, right. Grid, grid fleece. That's a common name for them. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, they're great. So, wear the grid fleece, and then after that, I'm generally going to wear like um, an, uh, an insulating vest, not a true puffy vest, but like an insulating vest, some kind of Prima Law vest, and then I'm going to go puffy on top of that. I think where people lose a lot of heat, and that's a pretty, you know, relatively light system, I can move around. It maintains loft in that grid fleece, and then that insulated vest. Uh, I've just I, there's some Sims ones like their fall run vest. That's just a great core insulating piece that it is the way it's the way it's built. It's meant to be layered that fall run vest, and then your puffy on top is meant to maintain max loft. And then gloves are a whole different conversation. Yeah, that's yeah, a rabbit hole. You gotta be careful there. And how many pairs of gloves are you bringing on a winter fishing trip? Gosh, I don't know. Two or three. I still think some of the best that I've ever seen on winter fishing is, uh, I can't think of the name of them, but they're those neoprene, like, half sleeves. Oh, the Kispiox. The Kispiox. Yeah. Those things seem ridiculous when you try them on. They are great when you're talking about cold weather. I also am always, always going to have just a pair of uh, full wool half finger gloves. Sims makes a pair. They're fantastic. I just, I love a wool glove in the winter. Um, yeah. The biggest thing I can't stress enough when you're talking about a layering system, I, I don't really care what keeps you warm or cold or how it all works, but you have to make sure that you're limiting your sweat. Sweat is like your biggest enemy when you're talking about a layering system and keeping yourself warm. If you're sweating, it doesn't matter how many layers you have on, at some point you're going to get chilled to the bone. Um, so just managing that sweat at all costs. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, that's where zippered waders are really Pretty nice. And then wearing your puffy on the outside or your jackets on the outside of your waders, they allow you to immediately unzip your jacket and let any heat when you're walking around or moving around, unzip, you're hiking down to the river, hiking upstream to the next spot, unzip that jacket, unzip those waders, take your beanie off or your stocking cap off, put it in your pocket. Uh, yeah, I think perspiration is is the absolute enemy. I, wear, I go pretty light. Um, and I found that to work best for me as far as staying uh, warm goes. And it's it's okay when you start getting chilled to the bone to take a little walk, man. I mean, just just give up on the fish for a minute and make sure that you stay happy and stay comfortable. If you can't feel your fingers, take a break, put them in your pocket, walk over to the shore, go for a little walk. It's amazing. And then here's a little pro tip for you hidden in here. Keep a couple of can like candy bars. Keep a couple of things to eat handy, accessible, not buried in your pack. But if you start to get a little bit cold, 
it's amazing how much you just jam a cliff bar down and it's amazing what that does uh, just for your circulation. It gives your metabolism a little bit of a boost um, because you can get pretty stagnant when you're just standing, especially winter fishing. You're working slow water, probably not working real fast, um, but you know, just getting something to eat. That's a great tip. All right. What, what are you wearing up top hat wise? Oh, I winter fishing. I'm typically I'm, I'm a baseball cap guy all the time for the most part, but I, I have tend to kind of rotate in the last couple of years to a baseball cap with a merino beanie on top, kind of that old school look. Uh, and then I have to have a hood of some sort always accessible, whether it's that that grid fleece layer that's got a hood on top or my my puffy if I'm getting really cold. But I I tend to be almost always having a hood up during winter fishing just to keep that that cold air off the back of my neck that drives me nuts yeah i'm baseball cap stocking cap combo guy throw the hood on it's amazing what that hood does it kills air movement but as far as the glove system goes you're not going to be happy with one set i like those kiss Biox gloves because they keep your hands accessible i like the just a fingerless wool glove is good because once it gets damp and then when things get really nasty having like a fold over mitt or a full mitten um, and that mitten can be used, like maybe you're pumping up your pontoon boat or your water master boat or you're launching the boat. Where are your mittens during during those times when you're really, you're winching up a boat or you're handling things where you don't need the dexterity of, you know, your other four digits uh, that can really keep you warm. Yeah, keep those hands warm until you need them. And then as far as fishing goes, we won't, we'll talk about my fishing the other day. I might, I mean, I would make it brief, but uh we saw some weather coming in where we had cloud cover and we had warm. I can't stress this enough. If you've got like a little local fishery and you've got a little bit of flexibility to kind of hit it, you know, maybe cut out of work or maybe you're maybe you're younger and you're in school and you can cut out of work or school a little bit early. When you see those days that have a like a warmer overnight low, uh, you know, for us we could have a, we could have nights that are 15 degrees, 15 degrees, 16 degrees mid-teens then all of a sudden i see an overnight low that's 28 29 30 and then that means generally we had cloud cover move in and it it held that heat in overnight and that really helps the fishing the next day even if the ambient temperature is 32 to a high of 32 33 34 degrees that overnight low really helps the fish are generally living in pieces of water where there's some interflow you know, just interflow is just another term for where the river goes underground and then comes back out of the ground and goes underground again. It's, I mean, it's really a water table. And so those fish will burrow into those, those spots within the water table that are like really favorable for temperature. So they don't necessarily, just because it's 30 degrees out, doesn't mean the water is below 30 degrees. There may be spring water coming in that's 40 degrees. And just finding a day where it's a little bit warmer, you're a little bit more comfortable tackle those days and get out on what we had an amazing day the other day it started out really really tough i was doing a euro uh style fish along clinic with my buddy paul um which i know paul extremely well but he really wanted to just a little coaching on the euro game so he's like hey can you get out tomorrow i said yeah we'll do it so we just did a, a quick fish along which is a course through our university that we do at reds uh where we go out we we mostly coach but we will fish with you so that you can see how we approach the water and it, it's kind of fun to see a, how a pro moves about the water without just a cast or two demonstrating, but how we would fish, the cadence, the tempo, the speed, how we move through the water. I mean, I think it's the best way to learn uh, quite personally. It's like 
playing tennis against a pro. You know, the pro will play down to your level, but you'll get to see how the pro moves around the court. Uh, or golf or skiing, you know, pick yeah, your favorite analogy. What's that one, the Michael Jordan one, where he was watching a golfer and he sat in the, I think it was Michael, it was definitely Michael Jordan, I think he was golfing, and he was watching these golfers play and they kept giving him crap because he wasn't golfing and he's like, no, I'm just going to sit here. And by the last hole, he had analyzed how to swing and everything and he was like, swung better than everybody else in the last hole because he just sat there and analyzed for 17 holes kind of thing. Yeah, just watch the game, you know, watch the game and learn how, you got to see what it's. You got to see what it's like. What it really. You know, there's all these memes, right? Like, what I what I think I look like when I'm skiing or mountain biking and running. <laughs> what I really look like, yeah. and um, it's good to see what it's supposed to look like, um, and uh, and and then just copy it. So anyway, we were doing this fish along, uh, and the fishing was really tough in the first spot we hiked into. Like, and I was like, man, I was kind of scratching my head. The water had changed a little bit over the course of the winter. Even on these big rivers, um, the way the gravel bars lay out are constantly changing. It's amazing how much a river, you know, morphs and changes where the gravel is stacked and how the current moves around it. We walk upstream and then we got um, a freezing rain started. And uh, so it was cold enough that it was freezing rain. So you probably can imagine it was hovering right at that 30 degree mark. Um, we had a little bit of ice in the guides. And I'll say something about ice in the guides the other day. This is fascinating. Dude, did I tell you this yet? No. Okay, so Paul's line, was he was icing up. He's getting a ton of ice in this guide. I'm popping them out, you know, and popping ice out of your guides on an 11-foot three-weight Euro rod, man. is like, dude, it's like playing Jenga blocks. You, you, <laughs> you yeah. got to pull one cube of ice out. You're pretty sure the rod's going to break. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I wasn't getting any ice in my guides. You know what the difference was? Your line? Yeah. Hmm. I was using a mono line. I was using this mono, like the mono line from Rio, and he was using the uh, Scientific Angler's Competition line, which I love that line. But that line, because of the vinyl nature of it and the texture, was bringing water back into the eyelets of the rod, and then it was icing up. Yeah, but that mono bringing no water back, probably. Bringing no water back. I wasn't freezing up. So there you go. Another pro tip. Write that down. Uh, Oh, as soon as that freezing rain start, the, the bite got ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, it was it was insane. I mean, at one point it was like eight casts, eight fish. <laughs> it was like, yeah, the fish were giving us a little help there because we were getting our butts kicked, you know, prior to that. But we had a little pressure change. Um, some weather came in. That cloud cover rolled in. So those winter storms where you're going to get some type of precipitation. Today is a really good example. Um, today it warmed up a little bit. That's what allowed all this moisture to come in. We got six inches of snow last night, and. Uh, that would be a good time to jump on the rivers when you do get those little changes. When you see bluebird skies and really stable cold nighttime lows with the same weather pattern across the board in the winter, that's generally not as good as when you get that, that cloud cover roll in. And the cloud cover is not so much because it's dark because you're going to be fishing in the shade with a low sun angle anyway. It has a lot to do with just taking the edge off that nighttime cold. All right. Okay. What we've all been waiting for. Let's talk about this moose hunt. So we already discussed it's a once in a lifetime tag. How many years did it take for you to, to draw this once in a lifetimer? The moose hunt. I have I have I have replayed this story. Now we're doing a fish on the podcast. Ninety eight times. I think ninety eight times. I so I got this giant moose right, and uh, that entire week was like kind of a bender, kind of a beer bender of people stopping by the house like. <laughs> 
dude, I got to see this Moosey yeah. shot, man. People were showing up out of the blue. Everybody wants to hear <laughs> And, uh, I mean, I was drinking like a six pack of beer every night for like a week uh, with people stopping by. It was, it was a lot of fun, but um, I think I've got my storytelling pretty well honed. Do you have a tone now? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, as far as, uh, yeah, the time, like, took 24 years to draw this tag. So, in Washington State, um, it's a once-in-a-lifetime permit for bull moose. For any bull moose, like, the way this lottery works, there's a couple of other lotteries. You could buy what's called a governor's tag. You could get uh, what's called a raffle tag, which is, like, really long odds. And then this is, like, what we call our special hunt permit lottery. And you you put in every year. Right, I've put in since I was 18 years old, since since my dad was out of the question, uh, or out of the picture on like, hey, you you know, like I didn't rely on my dad to do anything for me anymore, and he never put in for any special permits. But as soon as I turned 18, I had my own job, my own money, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to mail in my application. And uh, that was the first year you didn't have to send in the 360 bucks. I didn't have 360 bucks when I was 17 anyways. I probably wouldn't have had it when I was 18, but... At 18, you, you didn't have to start paying the deposit and paying for the tag in advance. So I was like, oh, man, now I can actually get in the game on these once-in-a-lifetime tags. So, And if you draw it, you're just going to be mowing lawns for all summer to hopefully make 360 bucks. 360 bucks, man. Uh, yeah, so I, it was money I really didn't have anyway. And uh, it's a good, good thing I didn't draw. But it was like at that time, it was like three or four bucks to put in. And uh, I would put in for all those. And so... There are three once-in-a-lifetime permits in Washington State. We call them oil tags for once-in-a-lifetime, but there are three oil tags. There's uh, bighorn sheep, which we have a, a California bighorn here. That's what lives in the Acoma Canyon. That's a once-in-a-lifetime. And there's other various herds throughout the state. There's mountain goat, of course. Um, you got the Cascade Mountains are spectacular mountain goats all over the Cascades. Then you've got moose, Shiras moose, or cirrus. Uh, be probably the proper pronunciation in the northeast and north central part of the state. And the moose population does seem to be expanding south a little bit. We've got moose popping up um, not far from Ellensburg now. Just really cool to see that moose population expand. So it took me 24 years of seeing those words not selected on the application every year. 24 years. That's about, about as long as you, I mean, I've 24 years a lot. Damn, Dallas, that's about as long as you've been alive. That's about as long as I've been alive, <laughs> yes. Yeah, 24 years, is, it seems crazy to, if I start doing the math, I'm, I'm, I've only got a couple points in there. If I do 24 more years, I hope I'm in as good a shape as you are when I get to that age. Well, give the folks like a, just a general summary of, of how your odds increase the longer you put in for these permits. Yeah, you can probably speak on this better than I can but realistically every year you're think of it as you're getting more entries into the pot right because you've got 24 points going into this mixing bowl of pots to hopefully get drawn um there's a there's a one thing that always gets brought up it's called point creep right where the points increase for units that you would like to you would like to draw on right um so every year Joe's got Joe Roeder's tag has a little, slightly more. He's got 576 opportunities in there is what it comes out to be to get. Yeah, 24 times 24. Yeah, and that's how many opportunities he's got in this big old bowl to get drawn. Uh, and, man, we ran into a moose hunter uh, nine years? Nine years to get drawn? Nine years. Uh, another another hunter who drew this year had four. So it, 
the way Washington does it, it's not a true preference point system where they just draw the people with the max points. Right. Everybody has a chance, but the longer you put in, the greater your odds increase. And what Dallas is talking about, point creep, is and point creep's like kind of a I wouldn't say it's like a it's kind of a hot topic, I guess, amongst Western hunters, but like uh, if my, my kids put in, say they have three points, right? And, uh, my, you know, some some old man like me, if I put in next year and I've got 25 times 25, they I now have 625 entries into, say, the sheep draw, whereas my kids have nine. And so every year that my kids put in, their odds are actually not increasing. They're actually decreasing because the top point holders are outrunning them so fast. So a lot of people, there's critics of the system. I don't really have time to critique, you know, a uh, point system. But yes, the longer you put in, the longer your odds increase. Took me 24 years, and then I'll be going on 25 years for mountain goat and sheep next year. Yeah. But there's a chance for everybody. Who knows? Maybe Dallas will be doing this podcast on moose hunting next year. There's a chance. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you talked about where all the moose are located in Washington for the most part. Why the unit? Why the unit that you picked? So the, the unit that I picked, and I'm not going to share, anybody who really wants to know can find out anyways yeah. as a once-lifetime tag, but I'm not going to share it because there are people that are putting in for that every single year. Sure. But the unit I chose is generally regarded as kind of the biggest, roughest, most challenging unit in the moose draw. And uh, it's known for having just some really unique exceptional animals come just pop out of the woodwork um, in that unit. There are other units that are more heavily roaded um, and have greater road density. Uh, they're largely owned by private timber companies that are more accessible where the moose are generally easier to find. Um, and that sounds great. I mean, easier to find moose. I mean, just the wildlife watching component of having one of these permits is not, it's not just about tagging a moose. It's about that whole experience of seeing moose and engaging in the woods and looking at moose tracks and looking at moose side and and that once in a lifetime kind of experience um, is pretty neat. But this is a little bit tougher unit. I have hunted bears in that unit two times. My dad and I drew up spring bear permits um, to hunt there. Oh gosh, a long time ago. I mean, I like 15 years ago. And then my buddy Connor and I drew bear permits for that about maybe 10 years ago. And so I had bear hunted in the unit some and just really thought the country was spectacular. Just a very beautiful place to, to spend time. Very, very wild. High population of wolves, high population of bears, good population of moose, the occasional grizzly bear. Yeah. No, it is beautiful country. Yeah. Super beautiful country. Go through like, okay, you finally saw after 24 years, and no longer said not selected, it said selected. What was your original thought? <laughs> print this, <laughs> screenshot it, and print it because <laughs> I've, uh, I don't know, there, at one point in the past, in the Washington draws, they've, they've, they've made a couple mistakes. I don't know that they made a couple mistakes. I'm not critical of the state wildlife management at all. It's a tough job. But uh, I printed it and screenshot it immediately because I was like, I was like, I'll be darned, like, I'm not letting this get taken away from me. A couple times they've, like, people have had this backdoor in to see the drawing results before the drawing results were real and certified because they kind of spin the wheel a couple times. And so a couple of times I've, you know, got sent a link like, hey, check your results in the secret, you know, backdoor. 
and those results weren't really the results they had run it and i had been showed me selected a couple of times for various things and it wasn't so i immediately printed it and screenshotted it and was like and actually i think my my initial response was i mean i didn't even lose my cool i was like it's about time (laughs) 24 years okay (laughs) it's about time yeah uh so yeah i got the tag and then you know that's really fun like for for folks that are listening to this podcast that might not be hunters like part of the cool thing about hunting and much like fly fishing but i see it more in the hunting world is like that trip that pre-trip planning and that dreaming in hunting i don't know why people will plan hunting trips and research it and dream about it i mean if you're listening to this podcast you're falling into that kind of that category of dreamers but with hunting i see it more common um where we we research, we look at satellite imagery, we map, we lay out a plan, we lay out a plan of exactly where we're going to camp on a satellite image, and, and we build kind of plan A, B, and C. If we don't like spot A, we have spot B and C, and I teach that in a lot of, uh, I do some online webinars for fly fishing clubs on how to, dream, it's called Dream Plan Fish, so if you're a member of a fly fishing club, reach out to reach out to me at joe at redsflyshop.com, and I can teach you how to do this stuff. But uh, when it comes to actually planning that, immediately I'm jumping online and starting to do some research. I'm reaching out to, man, everybody was so helpful, like on the special permit. And if you hear some slobbering in the microphone, it's not Dallas. It's my 90-pound uh, golden doodle that uh, decided to join us for the podcast. Here, his name is Timber. Timber, how you doing? Say hi to the mic. Yeah, he's pretty quiet until the UPS guy comes with one of my wife's many Amazon packages. Usually there's about two a day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, everybody was super helpful. Uh, man, I had friends reaching out to me that whitetail hunted in the area that were loggers. Um, and this unit is about four to five hours from our house houses here in Ellensburg. So you begin research, and uh, there's a forum, hunting-washington.com, which I really like. I'm not a huge contributor there. I'm trying to become more so. If you want to see pictures uh, of that, you can join the Hunting Washington forum. And if you look at the other big game forum, uh, there's a whole story I typed up and, and shared it on there because members of that forum, some of them were really helpful in just posting stuff from years past. So I started to isolate to a few areas. And when you get a special opportunity like this, I think, one of the the traps you can't fall into is just chasing every little lead that somebody wants to give you. Oh, you know, I saw a moose there, you know, four years ago. We saw a great big one. You, you know, like Alaskan moose. <laughs> Alaskan moose. We heard that. Like, hey, you want to shoot an Alaskan size moose? Here's where you go. I went to that spot six times and never saw a moose track. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Becky. <laughs> Becky. Becky at the diner. And yeah. Becky at the diner said uh, it was. That's a whole nother podcast whole itself. Nother she podcast. was, she yeah. was something else. Uh, it is cool when you get these once in a lifetime tags. Kind of the the previous tag holders, the people in the area that come out to help help fill that tag. Realistically, in the long run, I mean, I think that's going to probably go on for you. I think years to come for you, you're probably going to have to be you're going to get questions asked about this hunt and and knowledge that you found out from other people or found out with boots on the ground, right? Because man, how many days did you hunt? So that was uh, 13, I think. I think it was 13th. Well, one, two, three. I think I spent like 16 days in the unit, did a lot of e-scouting. And, uh, well, let's just get into boots on the ground stuff. I mean, let's 
we can make this podcast four hours the way you and I like to talk about hunting. But yeah, so the first trip up, I when you get one of these permits, it, this is true. Like if you're not a hunter, apply this to fishing. Okay, so like the first thing you do is you develop you 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 do a little research and then you have some type of idea based on advice or regulations. Maybe you call the a fly shop, you know, and the fly shop can only give you so much information. It's not like they're going to give you, it's not like they're going to drop waypoints on a satellite image for you. Um, they're going to give you some good general information to get you started. It's up to you to find spots that you enjoy fishing or you enjoy hunting. So I, uh, I sit out on my satellite imagery. I use an app called Basemap on my desktop and phone. Get Basemap. We love those guys at Basemap. It's great. Onyx is a similar program. I use Basemap and Onyx religiously. I use both of them. I'm a super user. I'm going to use both apps. If you're going to choose just one, my preference would fall probably on Basemap so that you just learn how to use it extremely well. I think that user skill on both of those apps is you know trumps the capability. The app is better than you are, your ability to use it. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Dallas, is he's more of an Onyx guy. Uh, yeah, I would say whatever one you choose, learn it well but they both have the cutting edge in certain things to where using both simultaneously is going to give you a long-term advantage i think uh, i think fishermen fly fishermen if they're not using you know one of those apps it be it go hunt which we've toyed around with go hunt go hunt's fine it looks really flashy and you think it's better and then you use it in the field a little bit and you're like okay they got a little bit of work to do yeah. if you're not using go hunt on x or base map like the way they manage is store and share waypoints and you can do work on your research on your desktop, and it automatically transfers to your phone. You can cache maps for offline use. If you if this is all new to you, you need like you're missing out big time if you're not using those to navigate either driving along streams or near streams or near lakes or boating. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd be lost without one. I couldn't imagine using a paper map to try and figure that out. And or I actually, no map. Grew, like I actually a lot grew up of in the yeah grew up in the era where I didn't. I used. MapQuest for about three years of my first couple years of driving, and then it was on to satellite imagery or GPS, which is crazy. Yeah, so if you're not using one of those apps, so you lay out um, plan A, B, and C, and then my son Jacob, who is my 13-year-old son, we spent three days in the unit. We were going to go up. We took our rifles to bear hunt a little bit. We went up in August, and uh, basically it was like it was more like an overlanding trip. We, we, took, we took the Jeep and basically drove at a fairly high rate of speed throughout all these drainages and, and ridges and you know kind of sub mountain ranges within the unit and just kind of ruled country in and out based on just our gut feeling we spent a little bit of time walking closed roads moose especially the big bull moose love closed roads there's a bush called seonethus uh, that they really like especially post snowfall and you can generally get a pretty quick read walking those closed roads where they'll bed right on the closed roads, like skid roads, log roads. And then that Seonethus brush just tends to grow really well right along those closed roads. Either there was a burn and they salvage logged it or it was just logged. It opened up the canopy and that Seonethus grows. So we would just jump out, find a closed road, hike it real quick and um, walk, walk, do a quick half mile to stretch our legs and rule it in and out based on signs. So we basically were just taking a really light sample of various units. And uh, and then on satellite imagery as well, like one thing we did, we did really well was 
we found marshes and bogs using that base map program. And it has Google Earth quality imagery with all these other features. But we found some marshes and bogs uh, that were really became extremely valuable, especially during the hot weather portion of the hunt. But we didn't see a single moose. We found a little bit of sign on that three-day scouting trip, took the information back with us, and I ruled out a ton of country and then confirmed that you know, some of it was going to be really good. And I don't know if I got to this or not, but like one thing is like these units are so big, you can't afford to try to hunt the whole thing. You have to pick out certain areas within the units to hunt really well instead of just trying to cover the entire thing. And that's where that e-scouting or, or looking at satellite imagery can really help cut some of that, you know, chunk off some of that land and be like, yeah, that's just not quite looking like good terrain. You wouldn't have been able to do that but if you didn't have satellite imagery oh yeah it just really helps and you can zoom in and you can look at what roads are currently drivable on that satellite you can zoom in and be like oh yeah that's a good quality two track road or you could see like where two track goes to single track like where basically you're like okay that road is dug out you know there's a tank trap or kelly hump whatever you want to call it at the beginning of that road and you can say I can mark a parking spot there and I can see all that on satellite imagery. So I try to do as good a job as I can to make my time in the field valuable. Same's true for fishing. You, you can you can use that satellite imagery and be like, oh, I can drive right up to the river right there. I don't know how many times I've hiked and beat the brush, hiking through blackberries and thorns and slide all there down to the river to fish only to hike upstream a little ways. And there was a, a like literally a hiking trail. You know, if I would have just driven up the road another half mile or known about it on satellite image, I could have been like, boop, I'm going to put a waypoint on the hiking trail. So save a ton of time, but we didn't see any moose. Um, and then we went back uh, for the opener. So uh, the opener was uh, for this hunt was October 1st. I, uh, my dad went up to be camp cook and my good buddy Connor went up. He took four days off uh, to come up and hunt. So it's my buddy Connor and my dad and I. And um, we checked some trail cameras going in. My Another friend, Mark, like I said, so many people were super helpful. It's great to have good friends. Um, and my buddy Mark was going to be in roughly in the area in September prior to the season. So he hung three trail cameras. And then just using Onyx, he uses Onyx. He's an Onyx user. Part of the reason I keep my Onyx subscriptions because so many other people use it, but he just he hung the trail cameras for me in spots. I had suggested spots to him on Onyx. He set the cameras and then he just shot me waypoints with his little hiking route. <laughs> with his route, he he recorded a track so I could see exactly how he hiked in and went to these trail cameras. So having never been there before, dude, I just parked on the road, hiked down through the brush, hiked out to these marshes, and was able to recover my trail cameras the night before the day before the opener. Like, easy peasy. Yeah. And, uh, dude, it was like, I can't, dude, anybody not using this technology, fishing or hunting, is nuts right now, in my opinion. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. You could, I could give you so many reasons for both fishing and hunting sides where you would want to have this app. Yeah, for sure. Dude, it's like, ugh, I, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but it's like the difference between fishing graphite and bamboo. Like, man, like... <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah, just like anything you're doing outdoors you know, using those those apps, is, is it's that valuable. But So uh, we found some moose on the trail cameras. We've never moose hunted before, so to have any moose on the trail cameras, we were pretty stoked. And But most of the picks were at night. The moose were extremely nocturnal. It was really hot out. And there were some smaller, you know, less mature bulls on the trail cam. And uh, so we were like, okay, um, 
not not no you know big giant mature bulls. I've got a long season ahead of me. My goal is to collect. You know, I have no ego about like shooting a big bull, but I want to collect what would represent like a fine specimen for a a, a Shiris moose. Like just when you look, when you think Shiris moose or you know, I follow hashtag Shiris moose on Instagram now. Like I just like looking at them, but like when you Google Shiris moose, I wanted to shoot a bull that kind of represents the species. They're quite a bit smaller than a Yukon moose. We'll talk body size here in a minute, but um, the antlers themselves are quite a bit smaller than a Yukon moose. Um, they're you know found in the lower 48. Um, Washington's got quite a few. Um, Maine is up there. Minnesota's got quite a few, um, but most you know fair amount of the northern states. Colorado, uh, Montana's got a little. Utah's got a pretty good population. So most of the northern states, northern Rockies and Cascade states have have these moose. Well, night before season, we're like, okay, we're going to go into this one marsh that my youngest son and I found that we really felt was beautiful. We enjoyed being there. We felt like it was going to be a hot spot. We hadn't seen a moose in there. We hadn't even walked down and actually gotten on the marsh. We'd looked at it from a ridgetop and been like, oh yeah, that checks all the boxes, man. When you picture like beautiful, it was described to me by a local, this spot as it could be on the cover of, or it could be in any field and stream calendar out there. Like, it's just gorgeous. Like, gorgeous, 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 high, meadowy, swampy marsh. We hike in their opening morning. What happens? You, you remember get, what happened? I don't, you guys saw a moose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 20 minutes in, yeah. 20 minutes in daylight, yeah, yeah. 20 minutes in, I didn't think about it, been like five minutes into the season. Just like you dreamed it up. Oh, yeah. Beautiful marsh. Moose is going to walk out just like you thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, dude, it was like, it was like, we walk in there. And we're like, man, we're breaking sticks going in. We're trying to be kind of quiet, but not too quiet. Because what we found with elk hunting is you're too quiet. They think if they hear you, they think you're a predator, you're noisy. Ah, they assume you're an elk. We're hoping this works with moose. We get down. We've never been. We're coming down through these cliffs, man. This whole thing is like cliffed in. We finally get a little gap in the cliffs to get out of the marsh. We're making some noise. And I'll be darned, man. I look out the fog like parts. And like, I wish I had like a camera crew on this hunt or something. The fog basically splits, and this 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 bull moose just comes walking towards us in the meadow. Not only do we see him at about 150 yards, but he's grunting like just. Like it sounds ridiculous, but he's grunting his way towards us, and we're like, "No way! Are you kidding me?" I throw my glass up on him, and he's just cool looking little bull he had two brow tines you know on each side but a, a less mature bull and uh, can't call it a moose but i can call it a golden doodle how you doing buddy uh so we keep walking down and uh we keep walking down and we're like oh man that's awesome and man that bull moose hears us breaking sticks and walking that he just comes in on a rope and you can see the little video of it on our at reds hunting instagram but i just took my phone out and filmed it and I was bow hunting at the time, and he came in to uh, 15 yards and uh, just held up right at 15 yards, offering like the like what would have been an absolute chip shot with my bow. And I was so tempted. I actually had an arrow knocked, and then I, I, as he was coming in, I put my arrow away because I knew I would shoot that bull 30 minutes into the open. I'd have been stoked with that bull. I would have been absolutely stoked, but the hunt would have been over too quick, you know, yeah. like... You try 20, to savor 20, that. I know four years for thirty minutes. Uh, and I know a lot of non-hunters don't really under like if they don't understand big game hunting. But it's like you're just savoring these moments and these yeah. experiences in the woods. And yeah, you can have them taking pictures and shooting wild. You know, I'd love to. I take a lot of photos of wildlife too. But 
it's just different. Yeah. You know, it's a different experience, and you're trying to you're trying to savor it. And uh, oh my my dog's on the hunt, man. I think he sees the cat. Uh, you're trying to savor this experience. So pass that bull up. He walks away and he comes back in, man. He thinks we're cows, you know. So he walks away, comes back in a couple times. And uh, we leave that bull alone. We try to let him just walk away, just kind of confused. And we leave that bull alone because we might want to put that bull on the shelf for, you know, a week from then or later in the hunt. And if he's going to park there and kind of own that meadow, let's just leave him alone and not spook him. So we work our way out of there, hunt the rest of the day. Uh, don't see or hear a single moose, man. We went and just pounded ridgetops and hiked through deadfall. And those moose, there's so many wolves in this country. Like, yeah, lots of wolves. Tons of wolves. Uh, talk about the wolf sighting here in a minute. But that moose just love that deadfall with their long legs. They can walk over all that deadfall. And uh, we had a really tough time covering ground. Like, we're pretty hardy, like, you know, hunters. And, uh, you know, we're, we're happy climbing over deadfall, but it's like it's really tough to make much progress. You could question how uh, effective you're being. So we pushed into a bunch of high alder patches, and these high alder patches that have, like, um, really flat topo lines, and this really, like, comes down to, like, being a really good mapper and navigator when it comes to reading topography. But that's where we found, like, all of our moose sign was in these high, isolated alder patches that were flat. Like, they had to be flat. And it was crazy. Even up, even up above 4,000 feet in elevation, we were finding evidence of beavers there. Above no 4,000 feet, no pond. Like some of them had a couple of ponds, but it's like these beavers kind of like would live in an area for a while because they weren't actively building dams or chewing stuff down. And dude, they, like you'd be hiking through the mountains and you'd, you'd be like, okay, we're almost to the little bench up there. You'd come to a little bench in that alder thicket. And man, there'd be like beaver chews all over the place, and they would create these lakes and meadows, and they would open up the canopy. They would create these treeless marshes. You'd have like be in this area of just giant timber, and you get to this one little alder flat where there was evidence of beaver, and uh, there'd be like an alder patch with like a meadow there. And it's like I know people say like, what? Are they? I can't remember. There's a nickname for beavers, like they're the catalyst of nature, or like they're nature's hmm. gardener or something. I can't remember the. I can't remember the term for beavers, but they do create like they're very dynamic in how they contribute to the ecosystem. Because each time we got to one of those, there would be like some beaver chewed logs. There'd be a nice meadow, and sure enough, there'd be there'd be big rubs from bull moose raking their raking their antlers uh, and marking their territory all over these little openings. And the opening would only have to be like 40, 50 yards across, you yeah. know, at times. Yeah, yeah. So stuff for sign, you're looking for rubs scat tracks that kind of stuff they're starting to rut right that first moose came in yeah grunting, right peak of the rut yeah so the rut is the breeding season so they're yeah these bulls are covering tons of country looking for cows smelling for cows smelling for sign of cows and and really on the move so like uh day two we didn't see any near here another moose that day we hung up some trail cameras um on all these marshes and uh Trail cameras are pretty fun and handy. They're kind of a way to see what's there when you're not there. And it's it's kind of a, a sport. It's, it's wildlife photography in and itself. Uh, the next day, uh, we, we go hunt the big marsh where that little bull was. Nothing. We we pound the timber all day. And then we, we hike out this bench that um, a buddy of mine had suggested. He had gone up there hunting whitetails before. Um, and uh, 
it was pretty off the grid. It was pretty tough climb to get in there. And we got in there, man. It was like, we named it the butter bench, man. It was just like, it was like, it was buttery. Like the sign was so good. It was rubs everywhere, moose tracks and cow tracks all over the place. And we finally get out to this little bog at the end. And, you know, like an elk hunter would call it a wallow. Uh, I think moose hunters call them rutting pits typically because moose don't like to lay down and wallow quite like an elk, but they like to get in that mud, throw it around with their horns, stomp around and a pee in it. So then that pee gets, you know, that scent gets all over them and then they can go walk around and spread their scent everywhere. That helps other moose locate them. So we get to this rutting pit that we hadn't been to before. We're cow calling. And uh, Dallas, why don't you give me your best cow moose call? Oh, dude, I can't hear it. Sounds ridiculous. Timber likes it. Oh, my dog's going to go nuts. Um, Yeah, it's kind of like... only call that I think I've ever witnessed somebody do. You don't use a single call. It's all by plugging your nose and using your hands. Is there even a cow? Do they make a no. Does Primos make a cow moose cow call? No, man. <laughs> you can make like a like a bullhorn, you know, or use your elk bugle for resonance and people will make, uh, it's kind of cool they'll make them out of birch bark um, you know, which I think is kind of classy you know, because birch is prominent in the high latitudes, you know, where you're going to be hunting moose, but yeah, it sounds ridiculous but Apparently, you know, now I had to watch some YouTube videos of actual cow moose because I'm like, this can't be right. But it sounds ridiculous. But we're we're cow calling for moose, and uh, and we're sitting there, and moose are very patient, and unlike me, I'm very impatient because when you're on this once in a lifetime hunt, it's one of the hardest things is just being patient, and trusting the system, and just understanding like you might not succeed. Like, there's a good chance that you might not fill this tag, especially fill it in a way that you, you know, really hope to. So your your best strategy is just enjoy every little moment of that hunt and soak it up. And uh, we were sitting there just going, you know, like, we're only two and a half days into this, but I have had some scouting days and, you know, a lot of emotional energy gone into this. We're just chilling right there. And, uh, and then... Connor, Connor spots, and you would think you would hear like an 800-pound moose, you know, coming in on a trot. I'm telling you, this moose got to 25 yards on a trot coming down a trail before we saw or heard it. And, uh, man, this little bull, and it had kind of one weird weird paddle and then like one full paddle. And, again, I put a little video of this on the Reds Hunting Instagram, but this bull comes running in, and it got right on top of us before we – I mean – we weren't even prepared. It came right into that moose call, and it looked around. It took stopped at the running pit, took one look around, didn't see that cow, and just kept running right on up that trail at a trot. I mean, it was pretty impressive to see how much country these moose will cover. We were mind blown. We made a little video of it, but that thing just came running by us that afternoon, and then it worked its way right out that that butter bench and uh, kept going. And we doubled back and hunted out that way. It was kind of the way we were going to go in and out and uh, never caught up with another moose um, the rest of that day. Well, the so we never so we've seen like one, two little bulls in two days. We're pretty, we're like, we're like, okay, this is going to work. Like, man, we're going to be able to see bulls and kind of high grade and find a mature bull. So the next day we go and uh, I think you know what happens the next day. Yeah, that's the next day when... Uh... Okay, so still no no cow spotted, but you spotted a moose that 
if I was there, I probably would have said shoot, but I was not there. Nice moose. A, a, a nice enough moose to where you were questioning taking the shot. Man, this was one that haunted me for two and a half weeks before I was actually able to pull the trigger. But we get into our marsh, like our big marsh, and where we had seen the, the little bull on day one. And uh, we go, hey, let's get in there right at daylight because these moose have been like extremely it's seemingly extremely nocturnal uh we were just having a tough time i mean we were seeing enough moose sign we felt like we should be at least seeing some cows and calves and stuff occasionally bumping them in the timber and they were just all laid down all day so we're like hey we need to be in there at daylight so we hike in way before daylight it's a pretty good hike to get in there and we get in right to the edge of this marsh and uh, the marsh is pretty long it's about 300 yards total and we were coming in from the south end of it and right as it's getting daylight, I mean, barely light enough to see, I throw my, my binoculars out, um, I throw my glass out in the marsh, and I, I told Connor, I'm like, oh man, there's a moose out there. Bull moose, good moose, and it's just barely daylight. Like, we're right at the cusp of shooting legal shooting light, or practical shooting light. I've always found legal shooting light to be extremely liberal. Um, like it's still pretty damn near dark at legal shooting light, depending on where you fall on the date, you know, cause they rotate the legal shooting light every, I don't know, every two weeks, 10 days or whatever it is. But depending on where you fall within that 10 days, it can be pretty dark. And so I wasn't really worried about whether it was legal to shoot or not, but I looked at that bull and I was like, okay, that's a pretty good bull. And, uh, you know, a really nice Shiras moose is going to be about 40 inches wide um, you know, with 50 being kind of the holy grail, anything over 50 being like, you know, really unique uh, on width. And I'm looking at this bull and he's quartering towards us. He has no idea we're there. He's just, he's letting it get light. He's standing right at the edge of the swamp, uh, 240 yards away, according to my rangefinder. And Connor and I are both trying to size this thing up because that's a pretty heavy trigger pull when you've waited 24 years to take a moose. And uh, yeah, it feels good to take a moose, but it we just we enjoy the process and the hunt so much. I mean, if you if you love the journey, you're going to be much more successful both hunting and fishing. You know, fall in love with the struggle and the journey and the process. And uh, I'm looking at this moose gone, man. He's about 40, you know, maybe 40 inches wide, maybe a little bit more. And there's different ways to measure him in Alaska. There's areas you have to have 60 inches of width. You know, on a Yukon moose, and their eyeballs are generally 10 inches apart. You're trying to bracket it out and see, like, is it 45 inches? Is it 50 inches? Is it 35 inches? I don't know. I'm not good at this. So we're watching this moose, and uh, I'm, I'm like, ah, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm not certain. I'm really not going to. I'm deciding at this point I'm not going to shoot this moose. And we're watching through our binoculars, and, man, that bull puts his nose down. For one second, he lowered his nose, and I saw how incredibly tall those paddles were. So... Shiras moose, when they get really tall paddles, I mean, they're timber dwellers. And when they get those, they get those really tall paddles and they don't get super wide. And that's helpful for moving through heavy timber and heavy cover. But they could still, they're still like a big, they still have a, they're a big bull with big presence for fighting other bulls to win breeding rights. So like Shiras will have like a tall paddle. And that's like really like almost like the more perfect specimen. I saw him put his nose down. I go, oh my gosh, I'm shooting that bull. Like that bull is enormous. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh. And he had a couple of really tall, long tines. And I don't know if I put a picture up. I'll tell you this in a second, but I, I'm going to shoot the bull. I'm all in. 
100%. I'm on the gun. I'm using a vertical sapling. It's a really steep hill that I'm on. And I'm, if you can picture sitting on a steep hill and then with my left hand grabbing the sapling and then my right hand is on the gun and my forearm, my stock is resting on my left hand, which is gripping the sapling. Like just kind of a traditional Jack O'Connor style, you know, rifleman's, you know, like a textbook, you know, grip on a sapling. Don't need a shooting stick or a tripod if you've got a firm sapling like that. So I'm on the gun, shots quartering on. I'm ready for it. I'm ready to squeeze as soon as and he'd been he'd been quartering on there for like 10 minutes. We've been watching this bull, and it's getting lighter and lighter, and it's becoming more clear to us that yeah, this is like an absolute shooter bull. We expected that bull to stay in that swamp all day, like literally all morning, all day. He hadn't moved an inch yet. And it, it, the bull turned sideways, you know, good broadside shot. That's the shot I want. 240 yards is practically a chip shot off that sapling, but I'm, you know, I take every shot extremely serious. And that bull turned broadside, and a couple of times he, he hesitated, and I started to tension up and get tight on the trigger. And uh, I could just never, every time I tried to pull through, he would just keep walking, and that bull walked right to the edge of the meadow, never stopped, walked into the timber, and walked out to the next marsh out of our lives never to be seen again never to be seen again in the flesh we got one trail cam picture of that bull about a mile south of there on another marsh and we're sure it's the same bull because of this one super long time they had, he had on his right side but we tried to call that bull in for three hours we waited and because there was another connecting marsh we got in that marsh we thought sure he'd be over there raking his horns on all their brush in that next marsh no. <laughs> God. Just to haunt you for the next two weeks. Oh. Well, keep in mind, that's only the third bull you guys have seen. How many Shiras moose have you seen before, like before this? Oh, maybe like a dozen, you maybe. know, and never really big bulls, a few big bulls while bear hunting, right. you know, but like, no, this is all new to me, but we saw three bulls in three days. We go the next, we go the next two and a half days and don't see or hear a moose. We come back with my sun and we do not we hunt four days four and a half days with my my younger son who had been there before beat ourselves to death i mean we're talking dawn till dusk calling raking exploring no moose for another so now i'm eight or nine i'm like eight days ish into a no moose i haven't seen a moose like we're fast forwarding we call in a wolf cow calling on that spot I called the butter bench came into six yards beautiful wolf amazing experience with my youngest son uh, that's the second wolf that he and I have called in one predator calling while bear hunting a couple years before that and then one cow calling for moose we like mo wolves are callable at least in Washington I know like where they hunt them in, in Idaho Montana and stuff they're not as responsive I think that they figured it out pretty quick that's a bad bad thing to come in I know that Corey Jacobson if you want to watch some wolf hunting, I know Corey Jacobson's made a pretty tremendous effort to figure out how to call wolves, but we can't, we don't, we don't hunt them in Washington. There is no management plan for them. But anyway, we call in the wolf. Wolf takes off. That's cool. That's the only big game animal we saw. We didn't see a bear. We didn't see a deer. We didn't see a moose in four and a half days. And my my little guy, man, he grounded out. Um, the kid's gritty. Never. <laughs> I think I've given him such crappy hunting when he was young he's like oh it's pretty standard dad we just grind it out to the end and something good will happen hopefully still super warm 
still super hot, full moon, temps in the 80s. It was more of a camping trip and a you know hiking trip. At this point, I'm completely committed to hunting with my rifle. I passed up two moose with my bow. Check that box. Could have got one with my bow. Now I'm more concerned with just getting a really good bull with my rifle. I go back up with, so three weeks go by. And it's killing me to let that big bull slip away. I can remember you come in the fly shop and you like weren't sleeping. Dude, no. It was keeping you up. You're like, I'm still having dreams of this bull that just keeps, puts his head down, nice tall, and then walks away, never never to be seen again. Dude, I, I am really struggling with this. I've gone through, I've missed some big animals, but I'm going through a lot of depression because it was just poor decision making. It was like, should have just been decisive and taken that quartering on shot, shooting a 300 short mag. 240 yards i absolutely could have slipped it right along the what would have been his front left shoulder i was just indecisive at first if i'd made the decision instantaneously that's a great bull i'm gonna shoot that bull and as it worked out it worked out fine uh so three weeks go by we're back in the woods and uh, i'm gonna go up with my older son and man a lot changed in the course of three weeks so that was the middle of October. I did a little deer hunting, struck out there. We go back up to hunt moose with my older son. Now I'm with my 16-year-old son. And a winter storm, like up to end all winter storms, was coming in. And this was now the first week in November, first couple of days in November. But they were predicting 12 to 20 inches of snow uh, in the mountains. And we got up to in upwards of three feet of snow. And I've got a Jeep that's pretty well set up, uh, but I mean, by the end, by the time we, by the time the story ends, I mean, there was like really you couldn't drive anywhere. I mean, barely. So we, my son and I, go up and we we do nothing but for two days basically uh, cut deadfall out of the road. This winter storm knocked a ton of deadfall out in the road. I fortunately I had brought you know brought my chainsaw, brought a couple of tow straps to tow you know pull deadfall out of the road and brought extra chainsaw fuel you know which I debated bringing more fuel for it but uh, we had four chains on a jeep jeeping around and the only moose we saw was a dead one. Yeah, <laughs> which that that plays a funny story too that dead moose but yeah. So the only moose we saw was a dead one. We found where one of the other tag holders, which was the only person I saw in two days. Uh, they had shot a moose, you know, right in the same area we were hunting. And my son and I saw where they were parked and uh, we're like, man, three rigs parked covered in snow. We looked at the back of the Toyota and there was a, you know, there was moose quarters in the back. We're like, okay, that's obviously, you know, one of the few other tag holders. There's only a couple of tag holders. And we're like, man, it's bizarre to, you know, bump into him. We, we backtrack him and he had shot a dandy bull. I mean, just like. Yeah, it's a nice bull. I saw photos of it, yeah. Dude, it broke my heart. But yeah. we, we hiked down there to see if he needed help packing out. It was like, so it's just weird, small world running into him. And uh, so we're like, okay. And he gave us some really great leads. His name is Jeff. And uh, he gave us some really good leads. He was a local dude. And he had hunted 20-some days. And maybe, maybe yeah, he had hunted 20-some days. And he gave us some leads on some other bulls, which we were really grateful for and, and really gave us a big boost of confidence. But he had shot a dandy bull. So we left with that. You know, we never saw a live moose. Uh, the only action we had was we we cut what we thought was a giant moose track, tracked it for three miles, and turned out it was a giant red Angus cow. <laughs> Dude. A moo cow. <laughs> Dude, seriously, it got lost in the snowstorm, man. It was up up in the mountains, one single giant cow. 
Yeah, that'll do it to you. Giant steer. Yeah, but you, you guys got good tracking in. Making some, it's making some noises up on the hillside. Dude, you guys are getting excited. <laughs> dude, we thought, oh, we made a whole video series about it. I, we're like, I'm like, you know, like we, my son and I were video, and we're like, okay, we finally caught a break because we felt like we really, you know, felt like they're, you know, you know, the hunting gods were working against us for a while there, and we're like, oh, we caught a break, and then we heard the damn thing. I mean, it never crapped or anything. Otherwise, we would have known right away. It was just a big, giant, red Angus steer that got lost in a snowstorm in moose country, man, <laughs> by itself. And finally, we heard the damn thing moo. We're like, what in the world? It was mooing up in the timber. Finally, we're like, we just gave up. We're like, okay, we heard a moo again. We're like, yeah, we know we're like, we, we know that sound. We're like, turned around. We're hiking out and had insult to industry or injury. It decided it would walk out on the ridgetop and just... He'd moo at us a few more times in plain direct line of sight after we'd tracked it for two miles, man. It was trying to get back to the ranch. Um, it got confused in that big winter storm. Dude, I'm glad I wasn't with I'm glad I wasn't with you, dude. You would have mutinied right off the bat. Like, dude, this we're not I, I can't trust you as a tracker. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wouldn't have let you track a single moose outside of that, which we did end up tracking one later, but yeah, my tracking skills. I, get, I should have studied more of the difference between a red Angus track and a... Well, you're dealing with 30 inches of snow, and you, it's not like you can get all the way down to the bottom, right? There's some element working against you and not going going a couple of days without seeing one. You're you're going to turn anything into a moose at some point. Oh, right? dude. Well, we'd seen a dead one the day before yeah. in that same area, a dead moose. We'd seen at that point, we'd seen one dead moose and zero cattle. Yeah. So we tracked that thing down. Well, that night, uh, there's a little sub-story. Um, Dallas, tell them, uh, so Dallas was coming up. This is where Dallas joins the party here. Yeah, so I had told Joe before him and, and, and Jensen left, I was like, hey, I'm, I plan on joining you. I'm going to come up a couple days later, uh, and we'll stay We'll stay up there, no problem. Uh, I ended up working that whole day, left that afternoon, early afternoon, jumped out of work, and headed to go meet them. Uh, on the way to meet them, uh, I... Those those dang deer, man! I see those deer every year in the canyon, and this didn't even happen to be in the canyon. But on the way up there, I was about thirty miles away to where I was going to rendezvous with them. Uh, a whitetail decided to make a chance at crossing the road. And granted, this is a whiteout condition, right? It's snow on the ground. I'm in four wheel drive in my pickup, and I see her in the headlights. Pick her head out of the out of the sagebrush, I guess, or it was the ditch. So I don't even know if it was a sagebrush. Out of the brush, and it's one of those moments where you let off the gas, and you're like. You don't dare go in the middle of the road. And don't sure enough, do it. She, don't do it. She jumped. I had about two seconds to lock up the brakes uh, and hit her pretty good. And uh, she took out the radiator, took out the front end. Uh, good. Uh, and I ended up getting the next safest pull off. I pull off into this long driveway. I can see that somebody had driven up the driveway. And I was like, okay, at least I know there's a house here and I, and somebody's up, in, up there. There's tracks Snow tracks going up, no snow tracks coming down. Zero cell coverage, zero chance. Yeah, I, I mean, I had lost cell coverage five miles back or, or farther, and, and I was just like, okay, well, I know I have a satellite messenger because our game plan was kind of to split up once I got there and go different directions and maybe satellite message. Um, and I go to grab a satellite after I hit this deer. The duffel bags are in the front seat. Uh, shockingly, the airbags didn't go off, and I'm grateful that they didn't. Uh I grab my duffel bag. I'm searching searching through like crazy. I've got about 40% battery life on my phone. 
my engine's kind of toast. I, I lost all of the fluid out out of the out of the uh, the radiator and the transmission fluid dumped out. So I I don't really have a lot of way to charge anything at this point. So I grab my satellite messenger, I go to turn it on, and it gives you that low battery signal. And I was like, Why do you carry a satellite messenger if you can't turn it on? Uh, luckily, I was able to just kind of turn over the auxiliary on the truck and charge a satellite messenger and get a message out to Joe, knowing that him and, and Jensen are hunting and probably not also not in service. It was kind of like one of those hope and prayers. I've got all my hunting gear, plenty of layers. I'm like, I'm, I, I was prepping the back, the back of the truck to sleep in the back of the truck. Not two minutes go by and a truck goes by on the highway and... I quickly grab my headlamp and I kind of shine it to them. I flick it on and off, give them a little SOS signal. Uh, they zip by, takes them a, st- a while to, s- to stop. It's a wide out. They come back and I gave them the quick little story. I said, hey, that deer that you probably just saw, I, I hit it and, and I'm kind of dead in the water. Do you mind hanging out for a few minutes until my buddy gets back to me on the satellite messenger? He's like, yeah, no problem. And then he was like, what are you guys doing out here? I said, oh, he's one of those special tag holders he's got a moose tag and so we're gonna i'm gonna try and help him find a moose tomorrow and and he goes and this is in the whiteout conditions <laughs> well, yeah. in the dark in the middle of nowhere i mean 30 miles from where we were but they he and i were gonna meet up only car i had seen for the last three hours i mean i hadn't seen a car this is why i was like pl- planning to sleep in the back of the truck i was like i don't even know if joe's gonna get this message uh and he goes oh no way is he He's an older guy with a with a son, an older son, and I was like, yeah, like a sixteen year old son. You know, they're both about the same height. And he goes, "Gosh, is his name Joe by chance?" And I go, "Yep." Like this is a small town, but I didn't think it was that small of a town. I was like, "Yeah, it sure is." And uh, and lo and behold, this is the gentleman and his father who had shot that moose that that you guys ended up backtracking and finding. I mean, just small as the world's huge. And that day, it smelled felt like about as big as a quarter. Uh, and so they were, we were sharing stories. Uh, it was just kind of one of those crazy moments. They sat there for about twenty minutes till I got good communication with Joe. He's coming to get me with his Jeep. At this point, we're just gonna kind of leave my truck where it's at. We'll get it towed in the morning. Even smaller world that they're like, oh, my best friend's a tow truck driver. Let me call him when I get to town. And he'll come pick up your. T-. I mean, my truck was back in town the next day. I mean, it was just it was crazy. So. Ended up hitting that deer, truck was dead in the water, grabbed all my stuff, Joe showed up with a six-pack, had a beer, and kind of celebrated the, the wrecked truck uh, and, and went back to the place we were staying. Uh, Black yeah. Beach, New well, I should, yeah, I can see where we're, <laughs> maybe I won't say where we are. We'll yeah, get it was, anyways, we were, we were staying uh, at this place, got back there, it was one of those moments, you send the message to the wife, you know, let's tell the family what happened, everything's good to go. Truck's dead in the water. I'm safe. Let's go kill a big moose. It's kind of the game plan. I was in, I was just, I was still so shocked or stoked at this point to be able to go moose hunting, getting the invite to go. I've seen a handful of moose out in the Spokane area. You know, you're driving down the highway, you see one in the median kind of thing. I've outside of that, I've never seen a, a moose in Washington, a couple in Montana, but uh, I just was stoked to be invited. So I was, I was pretty jazzed, even though the truck was dead in the water. Yeah, I got to tell you, not too many people just absolutely obliterate their truck and keep a positive mental attitude like Dallas. Uh, man, it just goes to show, like you can't do any, you can't do anything about it once it's wrecked. I mean, there's not zero anger, you know, anxiety, nothing um, that's really going to help. Going to help the matter. But yeah, so the truck, uh, you know, 
tow truck driver, Jeff's buddy, hooked it, hooked you up, took care of him, man. You didn't even have to ride back down there with him and get it. He went and got it in the middle of a snowstorm, got it to the impound lot, which was like, <laughs> couldn't be more conveniently located for when we had to raid it and get some supplies out of it later. But it kept snowing all night that night, and uh, complete blizzard. We get back to this little cabin where we're staying, snowing, snowing, snowing. I am literally feeling my hunt slip away from me because it is snowing so much that you can't, I mean, you can't effectively hike in it. We can't, I'm pretty certain, even with four chains on 35s on a Jeep, I'm pretty certain we're not getting hardly anywhere driving around, um, not without a lot of stress. Um, so I'm feeling my hunt slipping away and I suck at riding a snowmobile. I'm like, I'm horrible. I'm literally thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, I've always wanted one of those side-by-sides with tracks. I wonder if uh, my wife Kelly would <laughs> sign off on letting me buy one of those. Unexpensive moves. <laughs> Unexpensive moves. You know, but that's about the only way you're going to get around in that is, you know, like a snowcat because, uh, you know, I, I'm so bad at riding a snowmobile. I'm terrible at it. It's embarrassing. Uh, so the next day we get, get up and we go, hey, it's a beautiful day. The storm broke. It's clear bluebird skies. Uh, I know one area that is being logged that they're plowing and i knew they had logging equipment up there i knew it from my son and i had scouted up there we knew they were actively logging they were going to continue logging and there was a road grader parked up there so i knew once it snowed they were going to plow that road and it was also a hot spot that another friend of mine that had strongly recommended we hunt this drainage and uh, I had been waiting to hunt it because it had been so hot. It was salvage logging after a big burn. And so it was very exposed. And during the heat, it didn't make a lot of sense to hunt it. But once we got this big snowstorm, I knew that those moose, they want to get out. And one thing about moose is their browsers, not grazers. So they don't eat grass. They eat willow brush and ceonethus and uh, you know stuff that's vegetation that's dwelling above ground level. Um, and so they want to get out and all that willow brush and those those burned areas where um, there's a lot of good browse. Um, so they don't need meadows and grass and that kind of stuff. So uh, th- those burns, those especially those ten year old burns, have a lot of a lot of browse. Them. So this drainage was basically just one giant burn, more or less, with tons of willow brush. And so great for when the temperature drops. It's post rut. The moose's appetite metabolism is sky high. They want to get out into that and get as much feeding in as possible. So that's why we chose that drainage. So first first thing that happened this morning, so we finally get up in the area, right? Was the first thing that happened. Yeah, I mean, you already talked about it. Roads are white. They're, the, the main highway is completely covered in a couple inches, eight inches of snow. I mean, it's roads white everywhere. We're heading to this logging road, going up over this highway to get to this logging road. And, you know... It's starting to clear. It's that you know, it's that fogginess where it's foggy and then it opens up a little bit and it's foggy and it opens up a little bit. And on our way there there's this open hillside, old, old burn, just gorgeous country. And I I being the first eyes that I've seen on this country, I was like, We gotta we gotta glass this. So we get to this pull off off, off of the off the highway, pull off the road, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, Man, this is this is pretty deep over here. Pull the Jeep off the off the road. We jump out. You know, we're all gung-ho. It's early in the morning. We jump out. The first thing I see is before I even pull my glass, Joe tries to go to the edge of this hillside to, to glass, and you just completely eat a face full of snow. <laughs> face full of snow, man. <laughs> like two steps in, and the snow goes from 
eight inches. It had been plowed maybe once that night to 36 inches. I mean, over the waders kind of deep in. <laughs> and Joe just eats it right into the snow. We glass for, I don't know, 15 minutes, kind of just looking through as the fog clears. You look through this other section and uh, don't see anything. We get back to the truck, back to the Jeep to, to move to hopefully this logging, just get this logging road. And we put it in drive and we go nowhere but sideways when Joe hits the gas, just right into this <laughs> deep, this 36 inches of snow just kind of ate the whole right side. So we had another 10 minutes of. First thing that happened, I fell down, did a face plant, and then got the Jeep stuck. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be a long couple days if this is the game plan. Uh, and we ended up we ended up not having to put chains on. We were able to kind of dig it out of there with those mud terrain tires, and it, and it was fine. Uh, only to head towards the, the Forest Service road, and what did we cut? Man, we, uh, well, we're on a... We're on a kind of a plowed Forest Service road now at this point, and we can kind of, if you can get, you can park and block the road. Well, what did we find on the highway before we made it? Oh, yeah, well, you can park and block the road, but you can't park. Like, that's it, right? Because it's it's the way it's plowed, it's like four feet deep on either side. There's like literally you can't even wiggle your rig off the road. Yeah, we cut, cut two moose tracks coming right across the road. You know, right in front of it, right where we hoped they would be. Except the problem is we can't park anywhere without completely blocking the road. So we're like, okay, we want to track these moose, but also the the snow is damn near waist deep. It's waist deep, Mm -hmm. so we're not sure how effective we can be tracking these things. I mean, moose's legs are jointed in a way that they're designed to post hole through deep snow. So for us to go two or three miles in this, you know, waist deep snow, I mean snowshoes would have been helpful but i'm not sure they would have been it was such there was no base to the snow it was a november snowstorm so there was no base you're basically just going to wade around in the snow anyway we can't follow those moose because we can't get parked so we're like hey let's jam down and check out that big that that salvage logging area first and then we're going to come back and we're going to track these moose we're going to we'll figure out we'll dig a parking spot out so we're not blocking the road um yeah, so the next part of the story is like we went from basically like I was hunting my brains out on foot, boot hunting, wilderness hunting, you know, borderline backpacking. I mean, some of the areas we we're hunting were so remote and wild and just crazy boot hunting. And now it's really turned into like just this road. It this can't get anywhere. <laughs> total snow fari, yeah. you know. So we're like, I made the decision. We're going basically to a road hunt and glass program uh is the kind of the transition the hunt once the snow was to fly the ruts over they're not callable you know i wouldn't say they're not callable you know somebody will comment in there correct me but calling is not likely to be effective post rut big snow those bull moose are really going for the food i mean it's post rut they're exhausted low fat content winners here so the nature of the hunt was changing as the snow flies really to become a road hunt you know drive glass look cut tracks with the jeep then track them was the plan yeah so we're driving down and uh i'll preface this by saying i've done an extraordinary amount of backpack and backcountry bivy style hunting road hunting is generally not my mo (laughs) But I will take what I can get it. Yeah. <laughs> this is where a stroke of luck comes our way when everything seemed to be working against us, man. We hit the low of lows, wrecked the truck, we're getting stuck. 
You know, guy shoots a fabulous bull kind of out from under us, right where we were hunting. You know, we didn't know the bull was there, but like it just seemed like everything was working against us. We get into that unit, literally drove around two corners into the spot where we wanted to be. We drive around that corner. We're now in the spot. <laughs> drive around that corner, man. And the biggest moose I've ever seen is in the road, about 100 yards up the road. We like lose our minds. We're like, oh my God, dude, it looked like a dinosaur with antlers. I think that's the first thing I hear is, that thing's a dinosaur. Give me the gun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And uh, it was just so shocking. Uh, I just remember being like, oh, I mean, this is, I'm nine days without seeing a moose, um, nine to 10 days without seeing a moose. And yeah. I finally get to the spot, you know, like we're going to hunt and bam, there, there's a moose in the road. And uh, that moose takes off and, and starts working its way up the hill into the burn. I grab the rifle and uh, I just, you know, park the Jeep right there and there was plenty of parking on this spot i didn't have to totally block this forest road i don't care i would have i would have blocked it <laughs> so i i grab my rifle and i go sneaking up the road and um i go i go scurrying up the road and uh basically that moose is that bull that big bull is it, there's a smaller bull with it and uh it's working its way up to the top of this ridge line and i work my way up the road and uh, i'm just hopeful that that moose is going to stop near the ridge top, and it's getting right to the ridge top. And I'm working my way up the road, trying to get a good shooting lane uh, between all this standing dead, um, standing dead timber. And uh, man, it pauses right at the top, and I just shot offhand. And I was like, try not to overthink it and get in your head because you can miss. The shot was about a hundred yards offhand, and even though it's the size of a barn, I was like, man, don't screw this up. Make one perfect shot. Um, if anybody follows. Uh, good friend of mine's name is Joel Turner uh, and he's got a company called Shot IQ. He's basically a shooting coach, but go over and check out Shot IQ on Instagram. But he and I went to high school together and he's been my, my shooting mentor in archery and rifles, but I could just hear his voice in my head. One perfect shot, just pull through. And I'm like, okay. So I just slowed down, took a deep breath because I'm shaking pretty good, man. Buck fever. I was like a 12 year old kid again. I shoot the moose and boom, I make what feels like a good shot and uh, shoot it offhand and uh, shooting a 300 short, 165 grain bullet, not exactly a moose load, but still hits pretty good and bam, hit the moose and it just took the bullet and I'm like, oh Lord, please don't just keep walking like that didn't happen. I was like, I actually... They're, no, they're known for taking sometimes some slugs. Oh yeah, they'll <laughs> they'll take a slug and they'll start walking, man. Yeah. And uh, if, if he gets over that ridge and falls down the other side, we're, we're going to be... I'll, I'll pack a moose out anywhere, man, bit by bit. I don't yeah. care if it takes four days, five days. But I was like, he just took the slug and didn't really do anything. And then uh, he took kind of, it was a very steep, very, very steep hill. And he took one step back, two steps, three steps, and then a couple more and started to get a little faster as he's backpedaling down the hill. Finally, man, that moose just falls. And it was like a dream come true, that moose fell was obviously dead and done and fell and slid all the way back down the hill and literally landed on the edge of the road we were driving on dude it was a miracle yeah it really was yeah. <laughs> and yeah the amount of snow that that thing was in on that hillside jensen after this whole thing happened tried to get to that i mean he, he couldn't even get to where that moose was without snowshoes i mean it was crazy 
Oh yeah, it was like a fifty degree slope with three feet of snow on it. I mean, it was a, it was just a miracle. Like I'll never forget watching that thing slide back down that hill. Going, I hadn't seen a moose in nine days, and here we, you know, we find one from the jeep, and it's this giant bull, um, just a gigantic bull. I yeah. mean, just a one in a million type bull. I got super lucky. Uh, I had a lot of help and a lot of trail cam pictures from friends in the area, but. I know of nobody that had a current trail camp pick of that bull. Um, a guy I met um, named Tony that was also a tag holder who I met because he was a tag holder, just a wonderful guy. He has trail camp picks, he thinks, from that bull three years ago. Yeah. Uh, but it has 27 scorable points, six brow tines on the left, five on the right. Correct. Huge bull. 50-something uh, inches wide. Yeah, we got 50 scoring wise, like 55 wide. Um, you know, it's just a beautiful Shires moose, just one in a million, super spectacular. But the great thing was, man, we really got to take our time breaking it down and salvage every, you know, I'd say every piece, I wouldn't say every ounce, but I'd say every piece of edible meat from the entire rack of ribs. Uh, we kept all the ribs, bones intact to, to cook short ribs. Uh, the tenderloins were huge. The heart was spectacular. Yeah, I mean, huge. And we ate the the heart uh, tartar, you know, pre- prepared, you know, uncooked, um, which was like a real treat. Yeah. Chef, the chef at the restaurant helped me prepare that, and uh, or well, he prepared it. <laughs> <laughs> he prepared it, and it was absolutely spectacular. The liver was amazing. Uh, my dad and I prepped the liver, and the liver was so good. Um, Tenderloins were a little bit tougher because we didn't age them. Yeah. 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 That was the lesson we learned on that, right? Yeah. Should have aged them a little bit. Because you had one tenderloin, I had. We split that one, right? Yeah. Oh, we split the one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They were big enough that we cut one in half and you took one home, cooked it. Yeah, we totally should age those tenderloins. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But yeah, it was awesome. I mean, the amount, the amount to have the Jeep right there, you could take every extra second you could have all the layers you need you had all the creature comforts right there to be able to just break this thing down to take every piece of meat off of that take our time this was morning right so we had all day there was no rush whatsoever uh jensen's doing a science project or something like that yeah yeah my son uh missed school but for his uh his egg science class they were actually coincidentally he was missing the section where they were breaking down beef and so he <laughs> he did a documentary of breaking down this moose, and that was his homework. Yeah. He did his project. It was great. Yeah, it was it was awesome. So we've uh, we're primarily eating uh, burger. I'm kind of saving it like a lot of the back straps and chops and that kind of stuff for special occasion. I still got some deer in the freezer from last year, so we're doing a cycle. But as far as size goes, like the Shiras moose, like people talk about how enormous these things are, and they were a very tall, very big hump, like long neck, long head. But when it came to actually breaking it down, it wasn't as intimidating as I thought it was going to be. Agreed. Yeah, you spent, you broke down tons of elk, broke down a lot of elk together. Uh, yeah, lengthier, right? I think a lot of it was lengthier. The back strap seemed to be very similar to an elk. It, it was, it didn't seem as bad as I thought, it, as I had pictured it up to be. Um, yeah, I've broken down basically the biggest bull moose, I mean, antler size wise, the biggest bull moose, Shira specimen. And I have killed giant sized bull elk. Um, 
And I would say the back straps were you know, very similar in size, actually. The heart on the moose was almost double the size, Huge. which is yeah. the liver was bigger, um, it was, which was different. But the front shoulders on the moose were longer, mm-hmm. but they weren't that much heavier. When yeah. we weighed them at the butcher shop, the hinds were 95 pounds, right? Yeah. The fronts were only like in the high 60s. Yeah. With the knees not, I mean, with the bone in, knees knocked off, you know, everything from the knee down. So no hoof, no, no, you know, shin bone or tibula. Um, It was 441 pounds hanging minus heart, liver, tenderloins. Yeah. And that included, you know, the rib bones. So I actually didn't think it was like a tremendous amount larger than a very, very large mature, you know, cascade, let's just say cascade Roosevelt bull elk. So in hindsight, like I would, I'm kind of getting to this in hindsight, we we hunted pretty remote early in the season. I would not be intimidated about shooting one of these Shiras bulls almost anywhere. The hardest thing to pack out would have been the Cape, in antlers if you were to keep the cape and skull intact yeah what i would probably do i don't know it, it depends on where you shoot them but i would not be intimidated as a you know if a fit hunter with with one other person packing a bull a shire's bull out anywhere yeah you could do it no problem short of short of like impenetrable alder brush and that kind of stuff but as far as climbing over some deadfall and you know creeping back out some elevation or mileage i'd have you know, I'd have no problem um, packing out anywhere. One thing that was noticeably more, like brisket and flank. That thing, oh, yeah. dude, its chest cavity had so much more, we'll call it savable or edible meat on it. It was crazy the flanks that you were getting off that. Like multiple layers of flanks, it seemed like, off the chest cavity. And the brisket was noticeably larger than an elk. Yeah, I would. that's a good point. I would say that's a good port. You know, a lot of the, the weight balance went into that brisket and flank. So we're gonna have carne asada and skirt stank, uh, skirt steak, and a lot of cool cuts that you wouldn't normally get. Definitely wouldn't get off a deer, but you you might not get off an elk either. There might not be, you know, the volume um, volume that it would make sense to to cut and wrap. But yeah, so the moose hunt was great. Um, had a couple of buddies show up that night, and you know, the next week was just a blur, man. It was like you know. The, bu- the local butcher shop, Honest Cuts Meats here in Ellensburg, Washington, man, they're like, they are so awesome. Uh, I like to cut and process a lot of my own deer, but when it comes to like prepping steaks correctly and getting the cuts like flat iron steak and like the, the pr- properly cutting round steaks and stuff, the, they are so awesome. They're they good. had that thing processed in like two days. They like to, they don't like to hang age them. They just say, man, with, with deer's, the deer family cutting and wrapping them quick is more valuable than aging them, and I've got to admit, man, everything they've processed has been so Fantastic. good. Yeah, they do a great job. So good. I know there's a lot of you know debate and discussion about whether to to age wild game or not age wild game, but um, I kind of feel like the freezer aging is is better. It still continues to age and tenderize in the freezer, but um, the flavor just seems to be so good when you know they cut it and freeze it within a day or two of when you drop it off and. That moose, we were able basically to take those quarters and, and put them directly in the snow, mm-hmm. which I thought was incredibly handy to just get the heat off of those big muscle groups. It's super clean. Super clean, man. I felt like we were pros, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. processing it in like literally in a meat cooler. Yeah. So, 
But that's pretty much the, the moose deal. It's going to be hanging at Red's Fly Shop here in 18 months after I get it back from the taxidermist. So, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, um, set your calendars 18 months from now. So, it was, dude, that's going to be like 2024. Holy smokes. Yeah. Long process. Long process, worth man. The wait. Totally worth the wait. Um, we'll see what happens after the drying period, but there's a possibility that it will be the next Washington state record, which absolutely blows my mind. Crazy because to think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a dandy. Go check it out. It's on the Reds hunting Instagram. It is a beautiful bull. I might get around to posting some more stories of the hunt today so we can, or when this podcast goes live, maybe I'll do a little story update of the hunt. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Check awesome. it out. Well, thanks for listening to today's uh, podcast. Uh, we will dabble in the hunting a little bit, but we'll try to keep it mostly on fishing. But if you enjoyed hearing a little bit about some of our hunting adventures, let us know in the comments. Uh, that'll keep us going. Thanks for listening and fish on and hunt on. Thanks, guys.